Welcome to the Archives of The Laura Lee Show, conversation for exploration, timeless discussions to challenge and expand our worldview. And while you may find our guests fascinating, the views expressed may not necessarily reflect those of our own or of the Kuimange Institute. That's why we call it Conversation for Exploration. And join in our ongoing live events, interviews, our own presentations, and much, much more as we go exploring. Learn more at kuiamungainstitute.com and lauralee.com. And hello there, I'm Laura Lee, and thanks for tuning in to Conversation for Exploration. And hello, I'm Laura Lee. There's been a lot of speculation as to what maps Columbus used to voyage to America. Later tonight, ancient maps of North America, drawn hundreds of years before that voyage of Columbus's. And we've had a lot of inquiries about our upcoming Equinox trip to the Mayan pyramids. Our tour leader, Joe Curran, is here to tell you a bit about the classic Mayan sites, such as Uxmal, Palenque, Copan, Chichen Itza, Tikal, and others, and what adventures are in store for those who join us on this little adventure. And one of them is we'll hear Hunbat's men giving a public address on the results of his 33-day vision quest with 40 other Mayan elders. But first, one of the biggest mysteries about ancient cultures in Egypt and South America and Mesoamerica is how they built such huge monuments and worked such hard stone as granite, which is 15 to 30 percent quartz crystals. A couple of things that these cultures have in common here, the building of pyramids, the grand size of their monuments, and the construction techniques, as well as mathematical messages encoded in these monuments and their astrological alignments. We've delved into many of these features in previous shows. Tonight, we have new data on construction techniques, namely, just how did ancient peoples cut such hard rock as granite with such ease and precision. When Paul and I were in Egypt recently, we got to see firsthand superbly executed stone artifacts and stonemasonry in granite and other hard stone. According to Egyptologists, cutting granite was accomplished by bashing it with an even harder rock or pounding balls. This, of course, does not make any sense at all. You couldn't recreate such artifacts with pounding balls today. And this especially does not make sense when we hear from people like Chris Dunn, who is an expert in machine tooling and who spoke with us a couple of weeks ago. He cited the evidence on these stone artifacts for precision machine tooling, such as spiraling drill cores and arcs radiating out from the center point on a lathe and space-age precision in surface levelness. And again, pounding balls and other crude methods won't suffice when you hear... Next, one free-thinking geologist who says that, according to his research into the signature marks left in stone by various cutting methods, well, the marks on stone left by such proposed methods as pounding and hammering and grinding, polishing with abrasives, wedging, and even chemical processes, well, they just don't match up with what he sees under the microscope. Ivan Watkins is a professor of geology. He's at the Department of Earth Sciences at St. Cloud University in St. Cloud, Minnesota. 
he has looked extensively into the finished surface of Inca stonemasonry, which he says is similar to Egyptian stonemasonry. And he has thought a lot about how such surfaces can be obtained today and could have been obtained by ancient cultures. And that research led him to develop a solar power device for which he has received a patent. And it led him to theories on just what sort of devices ancient stonemasons might have used. He joins us from St. Cloud, Minnesota. Hello, Ivan. Yes, I'm here. Your research into ancient cultures, stonemasonry techniques, was inspired by what? When I was a, a very small boy, I had the opportunity to use a star drill to cut limestone fence posts. This is very, very, very hard work. And I saw in a book of knowledge at school an article about Inca stonemasonry. And I thought, wow, those guys know something that I don't. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to go there for years and years and years to see. However, I didn't have the opportunity until in the, in the 80s when I was a geology professor here and we visited the Galapagos and Quito, Ecuador. And then uh, after all the students came back, we went on to Peru. And you saw firsthand. It's so interesting to hear about this, to see pictures of it, but when you're standing right there and looking at it, it's a whole different story, isn't it? It, it is truly amazing when you are standing looking at it. When you stand at the top of the Rodadero, the rolling slippery slide at uh, Sacsayhuaman, you must be amazed. Little children slide down a rock surface today. And when you see them sliding down this, this rock surface, you say, wow, how'd they do that? <laughs> My wife and a friend uh, thought that the rock surface could not be very slick, and so both went to the top and slid down. And uh, It's both, slick. Pardon? It's slick, isn't it? Oh, is it slick? Uh, well, it would be more appropriate to, to say that when Berta hit the bottom, she hit the bottom on her bottom. <laughs> um. When you, as a geologist, look under the microscope at stone that is finished with this kind of glazing, which we'll talk about, with this polish, with this precision cut, you go and say, here are the proposed methods that the, um, the uh, archaeologists will tell us that was used in order to get these surfaces. And then you, as a geologist, come back and say, sorry, it does not compute. Could you just quickly run down the various methods that the standard um, archaeologists propose for this stonework and tell us what's wrong with it, why it doesn't compute? Yes. Uh, I want to start with Hiram Bingham, who, when he discovered Machu Picchu, uh, wrote a, a small article, and, well, not a small one, wrote an article explaining what he thought was the, the process that the, the Incas had used to produce the stonemasonry. And he suggested that, of course, they use pounding with other stones. Uh, Jean-Pierre Protzen has 
rather recently, the last 20 years, taken up Bingham's idea, actually taken stones, pounded rocks, and indeed he can produce a surface with pounding. However, when you look at the surface that is produced by pounding, you find that if you check to see which minerals, which crystals in the rock stand highest and which stand lowest, you find that there is no order in which are highest and which are lowest when you pound. Mm -hmm. Anything can stand high and anything can stand low because when you pound, you simply break the crystals out, and that's all. Mm-hmm. Now, the first thing one might look at, look for then, is to look at the surface and see if indeed <clears throat> there are particular minerals that stand high on the surface. Now, you can't do that unless you know the minerals that are in the rock, and you can identify them. Oh, let's take quartz, I mean, uh, granite, for example. Okay, granite is composed primarily of five minerals. Quartz, feldspar, plagioclase, and caspar, hornblende, and biotite mica. When you pound, any of those can be up on top, and any of them can be down low. It just simply depends on how you hit them. So under a microscope, you have a very uneven surface. You most assuredly do when you pound. Uh, There is no ordering of what's high and what is low. And you can see that distinct signature, as you call it, under the microscope, no mistaking it. No mistaking it. Okay. So there goes pounding. There, uh, Yes, because in particular, when you look at the surfaces, you find that even though a rock may contain a lot of quartz, the quartz is mostly not visible. What does that mean? uh, It's been removed from the surface. Now, the process of removal of quartz from the surface doesn't hang in with the idea of pounding at all. Uh It just can't happen that way because the quartz will be there. So, yes, that then removes pounding. Now, there are several other things that remove pounding. And I think the most important one that removes pounding is if you look at the intersection between a wall and the floor, that corner I'm going to call an inside corner. Of, say, a granite box or something. Or right. Something with it, okay. Or a step. A the step, step okay. that you find or the windows that you find in the Inca stonemasonry. If you look at those inside corners and you honestly try to make one by by pounding, you find that the the minimum radius of curvature Mm -hmm. that you can make is about three times the radius of curvature of the stone that you're using. I have pictures of radii of curvature that are less than two millimeters. And so it would take... Tiny little pounding stones, right? It it would take a pounding stone with a very, very sharp edge. 
uh-huh. in order to do that. But the pounding stone will break if it has the sharp edge instead of the rock that's being pounded. Okay. So you just can't do it. Okay, so let's throw out pounding. These Inca let's, let's, stone artifacts not made by pounding. <laughs> not made by pounding. What's next on the list? Okay, next thing on, on the list is sanding. Okay. And and that's taking an abrasive like sand and scraping it back and forth on the surface, right? Right. Take okay. a piece of wood, put some sand on the surface, and rub the, the surface with wood. Okay. Now, if you do that, what you find is that the soft minerals are pulled out of the surface. Biotite mica is very soft. If you look at a piece of granite that has been polished with carbide or diamond polish, doesn't make any difference, just so it's good and hard, mm-hmm. uh, and you can do it with quartz as well, you find that the biotite has been pulled out and there are little spots left in the surface mm-hmm. where the biotite has been pulled out. Okay, and that's in a modern uh, polishing of, of granite. When you right. look at the Inca granite artifacts, what do you see on the surface? Well, what you see, rather than having the biotite pulled out, you see biotite and hornblende at the surface. Uh-huh. No quartz at the surface, but you see these other Right. You don't minerals. see the quartz, but you see biotite and hornblende. And those seem to be the softest of the minerals, or what? The, the biotite is the really soft one. Uh-huh. Okay. And, and it should not be there, but it is. And we still, you, we still can't really explain how to recreate these same surfaces using any conventional technology, can we? Well, when you, when you uh, ask, I'll... I'll call us European technologists, we have used particular technologies to make rock surfaces. Okay. And there Mm -hmm. is a uh, process that we have used that we use in quarrying right right here in Cold Spring, Minnesota, uh, and it's used all over the world. That does produce that surface. You're going to have to tell me what that is in just a moment. We'll come right back with Ivan Watkins. He's a professor of geology. He's researched into the very special, highly precise finishes of Inca stonemasonry. He's suggesting that the proposed methods, proposed by the standard archaeologists, of grinding, polishing, um, pounding, hammering, um, and such, just don't answer what he sees under the microscope. We'll come right back with Ivan Watkins. I'm Laura Lee. Hi, I'm Laura Lee, and you're listening to The Laura Lee Show. What does a scientist do when the theory doesn't match up with the evidence? Well, he comes up with a new theory, and that's what Ivan Watkins is doing. For the question, how did Asian cultures cut such hard stone as granite so precisely and with such ease? Now, you may be wondering, why are we talking about this? Why is this interesting? It's interesting because it is further proof that the standard theories are inadequate when we address ancient cultures. It just doesn't match up to the evidence, and Ivan is detailing that evidence. He's saying under the microscope, a finished surface of Inca stonework and might be Egyptian stonework, similar techniques, just doesn't look the same as a piece of granite bashed with a pounding stone. Ivan, let's detail some of the other theories, and then we're going to get to a theory that does make sense, one that you're proposing for uh, certainly advanced 
uh, technology, at least ingenious technology here, uh, in just a bit. One of the other methods that they say created some of this very fine and precise and smooth and, and terrific stonemasonry is we talked about pounding, we've talked about uh, grinding. What about wedging? When I went to the uh, quarry in Egypt, they were saying, oh yeah, they stuck wood in there and cracked the stone out. That might have been to liberate it, but that isn't, that's a different process from the Finnish work. Well, they, they said that the Peruvians also used wedging. But if you go to Machu Picchu and actually go to the quarry, or if you go to the, the Ollantaytambo and across the river from Ollantaytambo is a quarry, and you look, you see no holes at the quarry where they could have put wedges in. So they did not use wedging. Okay. Because when the rock breaks, half of the hole, roughly, mm-hmm. is left in the quarry. The other half is left on the rock. Okay. And those are not there. And they didn't use wedging then. So they had to use something else. Now... They also proposed that they cut them with organic acids where they soaked a piece of string with organic acid, put it on the rock, and waited for the rock to weather away. Now, it just so happens that that will work, but it takes an immense amount amount of time. Mm -hmm. And... It won't work when you look at the surface because what is left behind on the surface is quartz, which does not weather. But the quartz is mostly gone from the surface. It's not there. So you have two different signatures again. Again, you have the signatures, and they're in opposition to what you would expect from uh, weathering with acid and what you actually see. Mm-hmm. And actually, I've done the weathering with acid to see what happens. So uh, it just doesn't fit. And so now that we've set aside the standard methods, you came across a colleague working at the U.S. Bureau of Mines who found that he could use focused light to cut through any stone. Tell us about that research. Okay, David Lindroth at the Bureau of Mines uh, in Bureau of Mines Research Center in the Twin Cities uh, had tried to to do thermal disaggregation of rock as a coring process. And most assuredly, you can take a flame, such as, as with a, a torch, uh, and this is what is used in coring today, mm-hmm. and cut a curve in the rock. Now, the curve that you cut in the rock leaves, again, a signature in that rock. And the signature that is left is that the quartz is primarily gone from the surface, and what is left high on the surface, uh, indeed, are the other minerals. Mm -hmm. It depends on what kind of flame you use, uh, which minerals are high on the surface. I'm sorry, what kind of heat source you use, which minerals are left high on the surface. If you use 
a flame, then what you find is that the white minerals in particular, like, like the plagioclases, mm-hmm. are left high on the surface. Uh, and and tell pl- us the rest of that story when we come back. We're going to see if we can find a match between the surfaces that our guest, geologist Ivan Watkins, sees on Inca Stonework and a process that you can do today to leave a similar kind of signature. We'll be right back. I'm Laura Ling. Hi, I'm Laura Lee. You're listening to The Laura Lee Show. We're talking with Ivan Watkins, geologist, about how did the ancient cultures, such as the Inca, such as the Egyptians, cut so precisely and so distinctly their very hard stone like granite. Um, Let's go to the telephones for Ivan, and the next call is Julie. She's in Reno, Nevada. Hi, Julie. Hi, yeah, thank you. This is uh, fascinating. And uh, I don't know if you said this already, but uh, a couple questions. One is, what is the diameter of the mirror? And then the second thing is, if if you have the light from one mirror going to another mirror, and it's, I don't know what carat gold they use, but if it was close to 24 carat gold, might the gold itself melt? Oh, because it would be very soft. Yeah. Well, you'd be focusing all the heat into a small spot on that. And then the third question is, how do you get... You know, assuming some of these cuts are going to be many feet deep into the stone, how does that, how is that beam able to penetrate, you know, so deeply? How would you proceed after you did the superficial cut? Good questions, Julie. Ivan? Oh, those, those are good questions. First of all, uh, let me try to, to put the two mirrors, uh, together for you in a way that you can understand from your knowledge of binoculars or a telescope. When you take the light from the, the first lens of a set of binoculars, you do not focus it on the lens that is the ocular. Rather, you make the image either in front or behind that ocular, and you attempt to fill the entire diameter of the ocular with light. So you don't have a point on that lens, but rather you have the entire lens bathed in light. Well, I'm sure that that's what happened with the Incas as well. They used a very long focal length first mirror. When at Machu Picchu, there is a a stone that spans that they call an altar, but if you sight from the altar, over to Wainu Picchu, which is a mountain at Machu Picchu, there is a half hole in the wall that is lined up with the altar. And that half hole is about a meter in diameter. Not quite, but about. And so they used a big mirror with a very long focal length for the first mirror. A very long focal length. The second mirror then had a much shorter focal length, say like uh, 10 feet. And then they could work at a distance like two or three feet uh, very easily or up to about 10 feet. And by using the two-mirror system, they could work away from the surface that they were cutting. Now, how do you get light into 
I can walk, I can put a set of mirrors to transfer the light into the cave. So what you need then, again, is a plane mirror to, to turn corners, and you need the parabolic mirrors to do the focusing. Hmm. And if you use a set of mirrors, you can do that. Okay. Okay, now that that's number one. Uh, no, number two, uh, I forgot. Um, how do you cut so deeply into the stone? You yeah. mentioned you were able to cut a few millimeters, but... Right, okay. When you cut deeply into the stone, what you need to be is a decent distance away from the, the mirror. So, for example, the mirrors that are in the Gold Museum uh, in Lima are about... Uh, 15 inches, 18 inches, some of them eh, might even be two feet. I couldn't get inside the case to measure them. But they looked about a foot and a half across. And so if you take a beam that is a foot and a half across at the mirror and you take it out 10 feet away, you will find it's a relatively narrow beam. It's a it's a very thin uh, triangle that goes out, and consequently, you can cut pretty deeply. What you always find with the Inca stone masonry mm-hmm. is that the outer edge of the stone has also been uh, knocked off. Well, this is from the, the light that's on the outer edge. It's not just going all in, but the outer edge is being heated as well and disaggregated. Interesting. We have a couple more questions for you. We're going to hold Ivan Watkins over. Hey, we are back. Second hour of our show tonight. We are going to spend part of it with Joe Curran. She's leading our tour to the Mayan Pyramids coming up in March for the Equinox. But first, let's finish our conversation with Ivan Watkins, geologist. He spent the last hour telling us, in his expert opinion as a geologist, why the standard theories of pounding, hammering, grinding, polishing, uh, abrading, wedging, and chemical processes don't fit the bill when you look for technologies that ancient cultures such as the Inca, such as the Egyptians used, to do their very fine stonework, very precise and uh, very extensive stonework um, that you see in stone artifacts and monuments just doesn't compute. I've been saying that when he looks at the surface, the quartz crystals have vanished from the surface. He's found a method that answers that, gives the same signature. Thermal disaggregation is called focusing a beam of light onto uh, focusing it tightly enough and you can cut through any stone. Interestingly enough, the surface that is left, the quartz crystals have disaggregated. They've also glazed. Haven't you said that as well, Ivan? Yes, I have. Which is why you get those very slippery surfaces such as you were describing an hour ago. That's precisely what happens. You, you find on the Rotodero a glazed surface and if you take a piece of the rock and cut down into it, you find that the glaze is is about a millimeter, and then it grades into uh, bigger and bigger and bigger crystals until you mm-hmm. get down into the rock, 
where it's untouched, where the rock is just as it was before. Now, the and only way I know mm -hmm. that you can change the size of the crystals inside the rock is to, to melt the outer parts of those crystals. Okay. Uh, most assuredly, if you sand a surface, you do not change the size of any of the crystals inside the rock. If you have a, a fault, a slicken side, which people have, have used to indicate why the rhododero exists, then you do not change the size of the crystals inside the rock. You only change the surface. And if you put, in addition, uh, a new mineral on the surface, like calcite or quartz, then what you see is that as the surface mineral, and it's very thin. But that is not what you see when you look at the rock, again, under a microscope, uh, from the rhododero. Kristan suggested in, intra ultrasonic cutting. Do you think that could produce this kind of effect? Ultrasonic cutting is essentially the same thing. Because, oh, how interesting. Because what you do with ultrasonic cutting is to absorb sound waves mm -hmm. uh, rather than electromagnetic waves. But they're very close on the spectrum. They're very related. In a real sense, mm -hmm. uh, the process is uh, very, 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 very similar. Okay. And that you, I haven't done it, so I mm -hmm. do not know how the different minerals would react to ultrasonics. Let's take the last couple calls for you. Mike is in Portland, Oregon. Hi. Hi, Mike. I think he's on the right track, and I'll tell you why. Okay. I had a dish engineered by the largest engineering firm on the West Coast, and I found out from their mathematician that they had working for him that uh, the formula for optics or a parabolic curve is derived from the Great Pyramid of Giza. Hmm. which I thought was very interesting. So it might be a link there that if they had that knowledge as far as uh, the angles and, and uh, the geometry of that pyramid, they used it also to create optics. Hmm. Anything sure. else you want to say to Ivan? Um, what I was going to ask him is I am working on a, a solar energy dish right now, and uh, I wanted to create a, a laser off of this dish, and I was figuring on reflecting one uh, light source to another one to get it down to a very fine point. Right. And then I wanted to uh, uh, transmit it through a fiber optic cable. And I was wondering if that would help make the beam more coherent. It would not make the beam more coherent, but it would, it would um, make it, it of uniform diameter. Okay. Uh, next call, John in Minneapolis. Hi, John. What's the difference in the amount of energy that 400 years of sunlight and a very large mirror is going to give in the... Um, What's the, 400 years got to do with it? Just a kind of a random number that the pyramids are at least that old. Oh, okay, okay. Now, now let me see if I can answer your question. The amount of sunlight that we get here on Earth in... Minneapolis, for example, we think has been relatively constant uh, for thousands of years. 
Now, not constant constant, but relatively constant. It's about one kilowatt per square meter uh, head-on to the sun. And so the amount of solar energy received here on the surface of the Earth has not changed a heck of a lot, even when the Earth was in a glacial period, we don't think that the total amount of solar energy was very many percent below what it is right now. Thank you. And also Joe Curran, who is our next guest and is here in the studio with me, has some very interesting observations to share with you as well. Go ahead, Joe. Yes, hi, Ivan. Um, yeah. Ivan, uh, I've been watching several times this summer down on Venice Beach in California, a, a young craftsman sitting on the on the beach there um, making pictures. Now, he's, he's got a big a piece of wood in, his ha- in one hand. In the other hand, he has a lens, and he's got the sun behind him, and he is just freehand burning this uh, the, the pictures onto the wood. And th- thinking of him and... and Believing as I, I do in diffusionism, knowing that the ancient Romans uh, had glass, is there absolutely no reason to believe that the Incas, in fact, would not have had lenses to work with rather than just gold? What do you think of that idea? Well, I know uh, that the, the people in Central America, the Mayans, uh, the Aztecs, uh, had glass and actually used it uh, for spectacles. Mm-hmm. And so I know that existed. Now, what I also know is that in order to, to cut the rock, you have to have a, a lens uh, that's better than an F1 lens. And while you can do it, uh, it is it's tough. But to make a mirror out of out of the noble metals, and incidentally the gold that was found around Cusco, uh, the capital of the Inca Center, was very close to 50% gold and 50% silver. And it just turns out that 50% gold, 50% silver can be polished to reflect 99% of the incident solar radiation. Oh, how interesting. Because they say that there was a substance made of, I think it was 20% gold and 80% gold and 20% silver, something like that, uh, called electrum that was covering the uh, pyramidians, the little capstones on the pyramids, and they found some, so something similar. They found the right combination to get the maximum uh, reflecting value. Right, And, and in a real sense, all you must have is more than 12 karat gold, so it does not uh, tarnish. If it tarnishes, then of course you're you're out of luck. Uh, you have to polish the stuff all the time. So you really need it to be more than 12 carat. But 24 carat gold is not nearly as good a reflector as 12 carat gold with silver. Oh, how interesting! And that's basically electrum, as the Egyptians called it. Yes. Uh, let's see. Any concluding remarks, yeah. Ivan? Yes. Uh, some very short concluding remarks. I believe when we when we do our educational process that we need to foster a, a great deal of criticism of K 
careful criticism, where we evaluate that which we are given all the time. Without that, we are brainwashed. And it would suit me a great deal to see every single course in this country taught with a modicum of criticism, careful evaluation included in it. Boy, that makes sense to me, doesn't it? And go ahead, Joe. Yeah, well, that, that reminds me actually of, uh, of, of Professor Wegener, who uh, back at the time of the First World War came up with this uh, theory of continental drift back in Austria. Yeah. And I mean, he, he, he died in disgrace. He, you know, he, he lost absolutely everything for, for going public with this, with this revolutionary idea. And um, then after about what, well, into the 70s, this is accepted theory now. That's and uh, I mean, this is a man who just dared to, to buck convention and paid the price for it. And um, you know, if, if we listen to Laura's show often enough, we, we hear again and again of people who have bucked the system, who have come up with revolutionary theories and have paid a, a, an immense price for it. In fact, her next guest afterwards, Gunnar Thompson, is one of those people who was, uh, was thrown out of, of the branch of academia he had chosen simply because he believed in diffusionism and uh, said so. And can find plenty of evidence to support his case. And, yes, he, he most assuredly can. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, we have a system where the journal articles are reviewed by the people who are the, the ones that have proposed and have had accepted the current theories. And so if a new theory comes along, it will replace their theory. Oh. And their theory, in no small sense, is their brainchild. And they do not want their brainchild killed. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about this protectionism, this conflict of interest in just a moment. We'll be right back with Joe Curran and Ivan Watkins. I'm Laura Lee. Hi, I'm Laura Lee. You're listening to The Laura Lee Show. And I always believe that an exercise in freeing our minds of dogma is always worth a few more minutes. It's such fun. Uh, we're talking with Ivan Watkins, getting a conclusion of his very fascinating research into ink and stone work. We also have Joe Kern with us, who will be our next guest, taking us on an adventure of uh, the Mayan sites. Joe, uh, during the break, mentioned that she has seen statues with goggles, and this, uh, when you mentioned that the uh, Inca could use um, lenses to make spectacles, well, this doesn't surprise her. It also doesn't surprise me that some culture with the knowledge of how to make parabolic mirrors and how to focus light uh, would not apply that and make an application to a practical purpose such as helping uh, one's vision. So this is remarkable. I mean, they say that this culture did not have, or some of the Mesoamericans' cultures didn't use the wheel, and yet you see toys with wheels. So we are so far behind the reality in looking at our uh, ancestors. Your comments on that, uh, Ivan, and you're also telling us about the cognitive dissonance between some theories and the evidence. Okay, first of all, about this, uh, the, the people in the Americas did not know about the wheel. That's utter nonsense. Yep. Uh, however, without roads, 
the wheel is not very useful. Mm-hmm. If you try to walk the Inca Highway, and uh, it's actually a paved road, then what you find is that there are a few minor problems, like in order to climb the, the slopes, they had to put steps right into the rock. I'll tell you, it would be very difficult to take wheels up and down those steps. Mm-hmm. In fact, they would break. And so the value of the wheel was certainly in question. Now, in order to make wheels that last, you don't make them out of just wood. You have to put iron around them. And yet, and I'm not going to say this with authority, but yet I have seen no evidence that the people in Central America had a process for smelting iron and making iron tools. I don't think they did. And so it means then that the wheel would not last. Can you imagine taking a wooden wheel up and down steps? It lasts about a half a minute. That was Ivan Watkins. Next up, Joe Kern will tell us about the uh, major Mayan sites. I'm Laura Lee. Laura Lee Online, www.lauralee.com. 